Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. You are in for a treat with an incredible interview with Eric Ream. Today, we're talking about rising above chaos and discovering significance. Eric is a professional speaker and author. He's been training and publicly speaking for 22 years. He's delivered hundreds of presentations to military officers in the U.S. Army, athletes, high school students, business leaders, and public officials. Eric has a long and rich utility background for over the past two decades, and he served as director of education for international public speaking training firm and now personally trains professional athletes, celebrities, executives, and professional speakers on the art of communication. He's a published author and a graduate of the United States Military Academy. Eric travels the country and speaks to organizations and associations on human dynamics and achieving significance. Eric's mission is to motivate high achievers to live life beyond excellence and to dig deeper into the human experience so that his audience will become inspired to pursue their significance. This is such an incredible episode, and you're going to want to have a pen and paper nearby because he drops so many nuggets and tips and tools and strategies for creating change or just seeing things differently in your own life. Eric's book is called Rise Above Chaos, and I strongly recommend taking a look at it and looking into all of the information that he has available in the show notes because he is just a wealth and a breadth of knowledge. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to the show today, Eric. It's so nice to meet you. Hey, Marcia, it's fantastic hanging out with you. I really enjoyed our conversation before we started recording. I've been looking forward to this. This is fun. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Before we even started, I one thing I really loved was coming across seeing you are a professional speaker. You are, mm-hmm. and I I think this is something that is so powerful because as I was just saying to you, I love seeing more and more men come into this space. I know there's a lot of men, but I tend to come across a lot of women. So what, like what led you into being a professional speaker? Oh, actually it's something I kind of backed into really. It's, it wasn't something I didn't think about doing until it just kind of fell in my lap, to be honest. Uh, I, in fact, it's kind of part of my story. You know, I, when I was frustrated and I was just frustrated with my life, things weren't going the way I thought I wanted them to go. You know, I lived out my story, Marsha, like I was told, you know, I did everything I was told to do growing up. I did, I hit all the box. I, I checked all the boxes, did everything I was supposed to do only to get at the end of it, realizing, ah, eh, this is not really what I want to do with my life. And I was kind of struggling with that. So I just started speaking at, at conferences because, um, they needed folks for breakout sessions, things like that. A lot of conferences, if you attend a professional conference, if it's two or three days, only two or three of them are professionals. And then the rest are 
industry speaker. So I was kind of like an industry speaker. I was in the utility world. And so I was speaking one day at a breakout session and there was a guy that I respected. His name was Dan sitting in the back of the room. And he came up to me and he said, Eric, you did a really good job. You're really good at this. And it made me feel good. You know how it is when somebody you respect says something to really edify you, you know, because we live in a world we don't get edified very much. So when someone does edify you, it sticks out. And so he said, you're really good at this. He said, what are you going to do this full time? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, you should be a professional speaker. Now, Marsha, I never thought of that before because I thought professional speakers were people who, you know, fell off mountains and lived to tell about it. You know what I'm saying? Or they were Olympians or yeah, yeah. They had these big stories. I didn't think regular people could do it. And so that planted a seed for me that, hey, maybe this is something I should look into. And so that was the first time I heard that. And then when I started, I got into sales and software, I started traveling the country, going to conferences, and I was the guy that was a vendor. So many of you that have your audience members have attended conferences, and there's always that vendor area where you can go and basically get a bunch of goodies, right? You can stack it with cookies and candies and little give giveaways. Well, I was that guy. And so I remember being there thinking, you know, there's like 200 vendors here. How can I stick out? And I thought, well, maybe if I got on stage, you know, I could become a mini celebrity at the conference. I would deliver something and then people would want to come talk to me afterwards and I can sell my wares. And I started doing that. And I really liked the speaking more than I liked the selling. And then over time, I just started positioning myself. And then I went to a couple uh, workshops and conferences on how to be a professional speaker and just started applying what they taught me. And then before I knew it, the check started coming in. And before I knew it, I was making more money speaking than in my day job. And I had to make a decision what I wanted to do. And I remember asking a mentor of mine, his name is Michael Hyatt. Your audience members may know him a little bit. He's, he's a published author. He was the president of Thomas Nelson, a publishing books, and he's a fantastic guy. And he had become a professional speaker. And I remember going to one of his conferences and I had a chance to talk with him. And I asked him, I said, when did you know it was time to go full time? And he said, well, your day job is like a pier and your speaking business is like a boat. And you got one foot in the in, the, in both. And eventually the boat's going to get far enough away from the pier. You're going to have to make a decision. Do I jump on the pier or I jump on the boat? Well, I was there and I had to make a decision. And luckily I had a beautiful wife that supported me, Marsha. And I jumped in the boat and then I became a professional speaker in March of 2019. I've never looked back since. It's been a fantastic journey. Wow. Good for you. So in the last three years, like I do want to dive more into this. What I actually do want to ask you then, you said you were checking the boxes, you were doing the things. What were you doing before you were you led into full-time professional speaking? Oh, well, but I was actually working in the utility world okay. and I got in the utility world because of a girl. Have you ever done anything crazy out of, for love before, Marsha? Just because you were so love struck, you just did silly things. Well, that's what yeah. I did. That's what I did. I actually met my, I met this young lady. Ironically, this is, it's kind of tragic, but you know, just how life works. I met her at my sister's funeral. So I literally met her next to my sister's lifeless body at the showing. And it is, there's this whole story behind that. But I, I met her there and I realized when you meet someone and you lay your eyes on someone, that's just, you're the person that I think you were meant to be with. I just believe there's, there's relationships like that out there. I knew that there was something about her that I wanted to pursue this young lady um, maybe because my sister had passed away and my sister was the the female voice in my life. She was my best friend. There was this void. And I realized I need to probably fill that with a partner, you know? And so I met this young lady and I, she had a boyfriend at the time because anybody halfway decent, as you know, has always got somebody scratching around. Right. And so she had a boyfriend at the time. He was in New York. I was in Colorado. She was in Indiana. And I realized that was the one. And so I took a job, moved from Colorado, took a job in her town with a utility company because I knew I'd be close to her and geography would win the day. And sure enough, we got engaged five months later 
Uh, we were married nine months after that, and I was in the utility world. So that's what I was doing before I was a speaker as I was in the utility. And you back up before that, I was actually in a law, in law enforcement, military police. I was a platoon leader in Bosnia, Herzegovina in Europe and a special investigator. And I became a body language expert during that time uh, because when I was doing my investigations, I really had to understand human dynamics. And if you really want to understand human dynamics, you got to understand body language. So I, I mastered that. Um, so that's where I, that's what I was doing before I really started looking at uh, speaking. Wow. I, I mean, I'm thinking of body language expert. Tell us what does that actually involve? Well, it involves this understanding uh, human dynamics and understanding why people do the things they do. You know, that was one of the things for me when I was in law enforcement. I grew up in a law enforcement background, by the way. My dad was a policeman for 40 years. Uh, he started out as a policeman in New York. He was a chief of police his last eight years. My brother-in-law, he's right now, he's the special agent charge in ATF uh, out in uh, Ohio. And then I was in military police. And one of the things I realized when you're in law enforcement, you basically show up in, in the darkest times for people. That's their people are pretty much at their low point. And so I spent my time, my days just seeing people at their low point. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty naive about humanity uh, before that point. You know, I grew up in Indiana. I was pretty, pretty, my dad, even though he was in law enforcement, he kind of shielded me from that environment. He was smart about that. So I didn't understand all that stuff that was going on. He didn't talk about it much, but once I began to experience it, I became fascinated by why people do the things they do, what motivates them. Um, and I discovered that the primary motivator for most people is fear. Fear is what really dominates our thoughts. And you talk about it in your book where, you know, people don't want to have these, these discussions because they're embarrassed. They, they fear that their status and maybe in society will be looked at differently. So fear just influences who we are. And so once I understood that fear was the dominating factor for most people's decisions, then I had to be realize, I had to understand, well, how can I, uh, pick up on when someone is fearful. Mainly what happens is when you're stressed, you get out of your comfort zone. And when you're out of your comfort zone, what I've learned is it's impossible to connect with people. And so in, in law enforcement, the number one thing I had to do is connect. That was number one. So when I was doing investigations and I was following up, I had to make sure that people I was working with was comfortable. And so I had to figure out a way, how can I detect if you're uncomfortable, Marsha? And what I learned is whatever you're thinking will eventually leak out through your body. So whatever your mind's thinking, your body's going to tell me the story. So you have 7 million different ways in which you could communicate with me, right? From your eyebrows to how you're nodding your head right now, or where you yeah. tilt your just a little bit and expose your neck, or you lean in, you pull your shoulder back, um, you know, all those different things, the amount of times you blink, the dilation of your uh, pupils, all these things are giving me cues on whether or not you're interacting, what I'm saying, if you're agreeing with me or if I'm taking you out of, your, out of your comfort zone. And that's what I needed to learn. I needed to learn when people were out of their comfort zone and why was it because they were being deceptive? It was because they were, they, I was hitting on a nerve, you know, and then how can I get them back in their comfort zone? And so I just became really in tune to people's nonverbal communication because it's over 50% of how we communicate and it served me very well. And so that's, that's the primary part on nonverbal and what I use it for. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that because that's yeah. so fascinating. I'm just finishing my master's in NLP and yeah. I was blown away to understand that like 57% of our communication comes from like our body language, what we yeah. say, how we act, what we do. We mm-hmm. think it's our words. And it's funny yeah. because our words are only 7% of mm-hmm. how we communicate. And so it's actually put me into such an observation stage where I can see people in different ways. So I'm laughing as I'm thinking about this because how important is that skill when you're public speaking? 
it's it's pretty important, mainly for not necessarily why I'm on stage. Uh, it's more important when I'm meeting with the event planners mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out what they want from me. And I always do Zoom calls with them because I can pretty much, it helps me communicate properly and understand what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, I got to make sure the event planner knows their audience better than anybody. And so I want to make sure I match what they want with what I have. And then I also use it quite a bit when I'm at receptions before the events and I'm, I'm getting to know people and interacting with people. That gives me a good idea of the audience and the vibe, what they're expecting. But then once I'm on stage, I'm in performance mode. You know, and I'm just really dialed in at that point. And usually there's lights. It's hard to see people. And then after the event's over, then um, what happens is, and you you probably discovered this if you've spoken before, about 20% of the audience become fans. Um, And those are the ones I really want to connect with because those are the ones that I can have a further discussion with. And so that's when nonverbal really connects well uh, when I'm having these interactions after after I get off stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely understand what you're saying. My very first time I spoke, they said, you know, just look above the people's eyes and be able to like their heads and just stay in that space. And I got on stage and I'm like, I can't see a damn thing. There's like, it's just like <laughs> it's blinding lights, it yeah. was blinding and I couldn't see anything. So that was a bit strange. Yeah. But the piece you talked about connecting with people, I think speaking allowed me to recognize like how, I mean, again, how many billions of people we have on the planet, we can connect with people that we didn't know before we got on stage to speak, Mm. but they see themselves in our story. And this is the piece we were talking about before we even started is so many people when they're speaking like to teach and just, it's like, how can you share so people can learn? And so I'm just curious what kinds of styles you have for speaking and what you have found has been like your performance lane. Yeah, that's a good, good, very good question. Um, I find that I've, if I'm authentic, that's great. That's good. And I find that if I speak through story, that's actually really good. Mm-hmm. In fact, my wife is actually the one that taught me this. My wife, it's funny because when I met her, uh, she was actually failing out of college and she had a 1.2 grade point average. And she's probably going to kill me for saying this, but she had a <laughs> 1.2 grade point average. She was on ap- academic probation. I didn't know. I didn't know it was mathematically possible to have that low of a grade point average, but she did. She figured it out, and she was actually failing family planning. So you would think that the lady I want to spend the rest of my life with is going to help me raise kids. I'd want to know that she's failing family planning, but actually, she's a great partner. She's fantastic. She's actually really good. But she had one class that she had a A plus in. She was crushing it. It was speech. She's actually a very good speaker. She's very articulate. She's gorgeous. She can speak like nobody's business. She's fantastic. And so one day I was getting ready for a talk when I was working for the utility uh, and in the audience, the mayor is going to be there, which by the way, was her father. Cause that's how I roll. I was marrying the mayor's daughter, right? So her, her dad was going to be in there and several leaders are going to be in there. And she could tell that I was nervous. And so she came up to me and she said, listen, if you want to speak effectively, you want to have, uh, you want to speak to the audience. Like you're having a conversation with a friend over a cup of coffee. That's how you connect with folks, right? Well, that was great advice. But the question I had to ask myself was, well, how do I make the audience feel like they're having a cup of coffee with a friend? Like you ever been in the audience before, uh, Marsha, and there's like 400 people in the audience, but it, it feels like the speaker's talking just to you. You ever yeah. feel that way? 
Well, that's, that's a person that's mastered that. And, and way you do that, I believe is that you take the topic that you're speaking on, which by the way, there's no unique topic out there. Everybody's spoken on the topics we speak on, like what you're speaking on, what I speak on, everybody's spoken on that, but you have a unique perspective on that topic. And if you align that with a story, then that's how you bring your, your talk down to the audience level. Because if you think about when you do have a cup of coffee with a friend, how are you speaking with her right, or him? You're speaking in stories, right? Like you can't believe what happened to me on the way over here. And you tell a story. Well, that's how people like to speak to one another. So what I've, the feedback I get, number one is I tell, I tell a lot of stories, you know, and I, I get a lot of feedback. People really enjoy that. And the other thing is I memorize everybody's names usually in the audience. So right, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I go to the receptions as I meet everybody and I internalize their name and then I use their names in the, so Marsha, I'll meet you beforehand. I'll see you in the back, right. As I'm walking on stage and I know that you're back there and I will mention like Marsha, Marsha, for instance, you're going to get a kick out of this. Right. And you're like, what? Yeah. And I, and I actually just did a talk in uh, Oregon last week. And there was, I talked to several people in the audience. And I remember like, for instance, there was a lady named Lauren. She was in the back, right. I remember her. She, she had a six-year-old, a two-year-old. And I mentioned that. And there was another lady named Lynn. I, I still remember her. She was in the back and she's brand new grandparent and they call her Oma. And I'm like, see, and I said, Lynn, as brand new grandparent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There was another guy in the front, right. Named Roger. And I'd mentioned Roger and there was a Gary in the left. I mentioned Gary. So when I mentioned names, right. And I tie that to the story. Now the audience feels like I'm taking them on a journey with me. Right. So I'm known for that. And uh, after I'm done, I'll go back out on the stage and I'll greet everybody by name. Right. And they're like, wow, that's fantastic. Now, two weeks after I flushed it, I can't remember the names after that, but I memorize it during that time. Right. That's I love that. That's incredible. Because if you are in the audience like you again, now all of a sudden you've drawn me in and I'm like, oh my gosh, he like, he, he knows me. I feel like he knows me. And it also shows the power of even names, like using names when we're in mm. a, when we're in a conversation. I can't remember. I know there's a stat on how, how, um, more solid a conversation is when you continue to use a person's name. So yeah. it is like, it is powerful. Yeah. Uh, how to win friends and influence people. You probably read that. You seem like you're a reader. Uh, he talks about people's favorite word is their own name. And so I don't do it out of manipulation. I just do it out of, I just, I like people. I enjoy people and I want to connect with people. And I know the best way to do that is just call them by their name. They, they have a name for a reason. Why not use it? You know? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that's the piece is it's never about um, a a manipulation, but people like to feel the connection. They like Mm -hmm. to know that there's a connection. Um, So you like now we'll talk a little bit more about what you do, because you certainly speak to a number of different um, people and groups and areas. Let's take it back to your book project, because Mm -hmm. you were talking in that space about like the choices that you made when you hit your bottom in 2005 and mm-hmm. how you rose up. So share a little bit of that time with us. Yeah. So you said hit the bottom. I call it rock bottom. And the way I define rock bottom, Marsha, it's not what happens to you because life happens to you. And you talk about right. that in your book. You got to own, you got to own what you, what you could control and, you know, let go of the stuff that you can't. Right. Mm-hmm. And things happen to you. Life happens, financials, health, th- those things, just part of living life on planet earth. But for me, rock bottom is when you let people down that are closest to you, you know, cause I think relationships are really, 
the key to life. It's what, it's what makes humanity humanity, right? Is the people that we do life with. And when you're close with people and you let those people down to me, that's hurtful. And that's a rock bottom moment. And so I hit that in 2005 in really three forms. The first was, you know, I mentioned my wife, uh, gut punch. Number one for me is when she looked at me when we were newlyweds and she said, I deserve better than what you're giving me. She had been crying. She had bloodshot eyes and she just stared at me. One of the good things about my wife early on in our marriage was she leaned into our marriage. You know, I would run away from it. If there was conflict, I would just walk away. That's the way how I dealt with conflict. She didn't. She leaned into it. She would just, she wanted to fix it right then and there. We're not going to do anything else until this gets fixed. And so she looked at me and she said, I deserve better than what you're giving me. This is not what I expected out of a, out of a, out of a husband, out of a marriage. And that hurt me because out of all the guys that she could have chosen, trust me, she could have chosen a lot of different guys than me. And she, she chose me. And she was my best friend and I was letting her down. When your best friend looks at you and says, you're not good enough. That's what I heard. And she didn't say that, but that's what I heard. That's what I received. Then that, that that was a gut punch for me. And then the second gut punch in 2005 is when my dad, my twin boys were born, Marsha, and my mom and dad lived in Indiana. We were in Colorado. They flew out to see their grandkids, right? They flew out to spend time with us. They were going to stay 10 days, two days in my dad and I got into a drop dead fight. And I laid my hands on my dad in anger and I pushed him out of my house and told him to get out. Right. And he left that day, that day. He was only put, he was supposed to stay for 10. He left on day two. My dad was the best man at my wedding, my hero, someone I looked up to, but yet I found myself pushing my hero, my best man at my wedding out of my house in anger. And have you ever had a point where you've done something just stupid? You were so mad and you had this outer body experience. Mm-hmm. And you could see it. it's like it's like watching a movie play out in front of you, and you know it's stupid. You know you're going to regret it, but yeah. that anger and that momentum has taken over, and you just can't stop it. And you and that's what happened. So my dad left that day, and we didn't speak for six months. We normally speak every day. In fact, we'll probably talk two or three times a day. Wow. And then gut punch number three, you're suspended. That's what my human resource director told me after a week long investigation where they were investigating I was abusing my power uh, as a leader in my organization. And what, what was happening was I was just out of the military. I was treating people like soldiers. I didn't know how to uh, interact with people in a very healthy way. I was young, ambitious, but I lacked self-awareness and they weren't having none of it. So they said, don't come back to work on Monday. You get a week of unpaid leave. You just need to take a break and figure some things out. So in 2005, I found myself in a dark place. I was failing in my marriage. I was failing uh, in my career. I was failing with my dad and something was off. Something was wrong. And so I had to figure that out. That's where it, my, my journey starts in that book is that that moment in 2005 when I hit my rock bottom. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. And I know that everybody can relate in a sense that we all have our moments. So you, you took me back to a time when I remember sitting there going, feeling like every single thing around me was, was falling apart. And I think that we as humans, sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking like, why, why are bad things happening to me? Why is this like, why me, why me? But as you said earlier, like life happens to all of us. And so we have those moments, but it's always about like what we choose to do next that matters. Yeah. And the bad part about it, Marsha, is the difference I think in my story is that bad things weren't happening to me. Actually, good things were happening. My wife was great. My kids were healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was great. And outside looking in, I look like we should have been, everything should have been going great. But the problem was I was just miserable because there was something off of my life. There was something not right. And I had a hard time putting my finger on it. Here's the thing. I felt bad about it. 
because out of all the things that are going on in this world, I, I, I was the least of the people that should have been complaining about my life. You know, there's people that were dealing with things much bigger, way bigger than I could ever imagine. But yet I found myself being miserable. And then what I realized is that if you're in a place in your life where you don't want to be, it doesn't matter relatively what's going on around you. If you're miserable, you're miserable. And that's where I was. I was miserable. And I didn't, I didn't think I should have been, but I found myself in this situation where I was living a destructive lifestyle and something needed to change. And so I had to, I had to kind of unpack that at that point. And luckily I did, I, I figured some things out and that's what I talk about in the book. I outlined the journey, but the bottom line is I was aware in that moment that if I was going to continue down this path, probably at the end of it, I probably wouldn't have a wife. I wouldn't have a relationship with my dad and I probably going to have to find a new career. So something had to change. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. You're the one thing you keep saying that I think is really important is this piece on self-awareness, mm-hmm. right? Like to me, I love the words ownership and own your choices, obviously the name of the show. Right. Um, but there was that, I know it's being smart, but um, there was that turning point for you that you said you had to recognize that, you know, I don't actually have anything really wrong happening. I am in a space where I'm not like something's not working for me. To me, that's an ownership space. And mm-hmm. that comes from self-awareness. And now being able to do that without shaming and judging and criticizing yourself, because that never leads to change. How did you make some of those first few steps where you then started to create a different life for yourself? Yeah. So what I did was um, the first day of suspension, uh, I'm a routine guy. And so I was just used to getting up and going to work. That was taken away from me. So I still got up like I was going to work because that's what I did. And so I just went to my wife. My wife's name is Aaliyah, by the way. I think I should acknowledge that. It's a beautiful name. So I'm going to say my wife. I'm going to say Aaliyah. Let's introduce the world, my wife, Aaliyah. So I went to Aaliyah and I told her, I said, "Uh, I just got to get out and I'm going to come back a little later. And so I I went for a drive. And for those that are from Colorado, I found myself in this small little town called Niwak, Colorado. It's about 15 minutes outside of Boulder, Colorado, about 45 minutes from where I live. It was close enough where if I need to get home to my wife, I could, but far enough where I just felt like I could get away and just think about things. I just need to meditate and concentrate and think about where I was in my life, right? Now, so on the outside looking in, it sounds very selfish, right? My wife's there with the kids and I'm just taking off. When I say that, it's like, man, I need to get over myself. But the problem was, is there was just something going on. I, I had to figure it out and I had to do it the way that I knew I could figure it out, right? I knew I needed to just get away and I needed to think. I need to think about what was my life, right? So I was in Niwot. Niwot's a small little Hallmark looking town, like a movie set. It's beautiful. And so I went in this little coffee shop in Niwot. I got a cup of coffee. I sat right next to the window where I could look in the downtown area. And I sat there for seven hours just thinking on my life. In fact, I went back there every day that week and sat there for seven hours with a cup of coffee. By the end of it, the baristas thought I was weird. This one guy come and get a cup of coffee and just sit there. Like I bought a cup of coffee and like I owned that table for seven hours. Right. And so I just sat there and I was just thinking, I was contemplating and I begin to realize and begin to think about um, what was going on in my life. And I took myself back to Bosnia. So in 1996, when I graduated from the Academy at West Point, and I graduated in 95. In 96, my first duty station was a platoon leader in Bosnia Herzegovina. Now, in the mid 90s, Marsha, that was uh, what was going on in the world was Bosnia was at a level where they were at World War II level type genocide. I mean, it was horrific. You know, a lot of it's we don't talk about it very much, but we're talking like World War II, like just getting rid of entire races of people based on religion. So if you were the wrong religion, it didn't matter if you were a man, woman, or child, they would just execute you and put you in a, a grave. They would execute entire families in front of each other to the point that the world could no longer look the other way. 
And so we came together as a, as a, as a society and said, we got to fix this. And so the U.S. was a part of that. It was called Operation Joint Endeavor. So at 23 years old, I found myself in a, in a country about the size of the state of Alabama with 3 million undocumented landmines and fresh mass grave sites all over the country where people's lives were just extinguished, you know? And so that's when I began to see the dark side of humanity for the first time. I'd never saw that depth, that level of evil. There's, it's one thing to read about it in a book, mm-hmm. you know, read about World War II in history. It's another thing to watch what's going on in the Ukraine. And we're just going to, I think we're just scratching the surface of what's going on there. We're going to learn more about it later, but we watch it in between dinner and maybe Monday night football. We watch like 30 minutes of it and we kind of have an idea of what we think is going on. It's different than when you're on ground, you can see it, taste it and smell it. Right. And so I, I began to ask myself this fundamental question at 23 years old. My question was this, um, do we all possess that same level of darkness in our hearts? Or is that just something we read about? and books. Do we all have that? Do you have that, Marsha? Does everybody on this that's listening to this podcast, could we get to that level of darkness where we would be willing to do what I saw in Bosnia? And the answer to that question came in a couple forms, but just to keep it short, when I realized when I laid my hands on my dad that day in anger and I threw him out of my house, I recognized that level of darkness because I saw it in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that all of us, including you, Marsha, we all have that capability to go to that level of evil in our hearts if the conditions were right, if the conditions were right, we could all go there. And so I began to ask myself, well, what was the problem? What was the issue that was in my way that gets in your way that gets in everybody that's listening right now? You know, when things came to go well, but then you tend to sabotage yourself, you tend to do stupid things. You're like, why do I continue in this pattern I find myself in, right? Mm-hmm. Just when things are going well. And so I realized that there was this unknown force that was in my life that every time I moved forward in something, it got in the way. And it was like it was riding shotgun in my life and it was dominating my life. And so I began to give it a name. I had to identify it. I'm like, all right, if this is something I got to deal with, I got to start calling it something. So that week in Niwot, I began to call it the beast. And I call it the beast because the beast is, is if you think about an animal in the wild, if you're, if you're a watcher when they're, when the animals attack each other, it's like, oh my gosh, that's why do they do that? Well, they have no skin in the game. They don't, they don't care about the, what's going on in that, that animal's life. They're just trying to stay alive. They're like machines. They're just predators. And that's what the beast is. It has no personal vendetta. It's just a machine. And it's something that had to be dealt with. And I realized that all of us have a beast in our life that we have to deal with the unknown force, your own demons that you have to overcome. Right. And so I realized that there's no way that I could get rid of it because it's life on planet earth. Everybody has it. You can't get rid of it, but I was determined that I could tame it. And I, I realized that if I could just tame this thing and develop a way that I could put it in the backseat of my life, it's never going to go away, but I can make it in a, in a way, in an area that's not going to affect me like it was. That's number one. The second thing I realized is what was my problem was is that I lack significance in my life. And that's when I began to realize that as a human being, including yourself and everybody listening, we all desire to have some level of significance in our life, right? None of us wants to get at the end of our life and realize that it meant nothing. We want to know that we had an impact. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't, I, I had no significance in my life. I had talent. I had, I had uh, a level of energy, but I just lacked purpose. And what I realized is that a person like myself with no purpose is dangerous. And what happens is we have to have something in our lives that's purposeful. And if we don't have something that's meaningful, then the beast will fill it with something. And that's what was happening. As I was getting filled with this this destructive lifestyle that was taking me down the wrong path, and I had to control it. Now, here's the good news. By the time I ended that suspension, I still had my wife, right? I still Mm -hmm. had my dad. I still had my job. 
what I had to do is I had to develop a methodology that was going to tame the beast, but also figure out ways that I could rise above my chaos that I was experiencing at that point so I could find my level of significance. And so that's, that's what I kind of discovered during that week of suspension there. Oh, thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, I just, I felt like I was on the ride with you and I could, <laughs> I, yeah, which is exactly what you want. Um, you said something that I don't think I've heard said this way before. And I just want to like tie a bow with my own perception is the fact that we all have this beast inside of us. Mm-hmm. And when we think about, you know, the self-sabotage or things maybe aren't going the way that we want, or, I mean, of course, sometimes it's easy to blame others but mm-hmm. when we're in this space of recognizing that like we are our own biggest critic, we're our own biggest enemy at all times. If we don't learn how to tame that, mm-hmm. if we live without a purpose, that beast has like room to grow and take That's over. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I learned that big time uh, in Bosnia when we would go in these towns, Marsha, and I would see all these young men, very vibrant men, very strong, powerful men. And they were like, you know, 17, 18 in their twenties. And they just, they were just kind of loitering in town. They were just kind of walking around. They didn't have jobs. They had nothing going on. They had no purpose. And so it began, it was filled with this, this purpose of religion and that we had to wipe this other religion out. And that's what I were, I just learned that everybody has to have purpose. If they don't have purpose, then they're dangerous. In fact, I learned that with my soldiers. We, we, we always said in the military that idle soldiers are dangerous soldiers. And so you got to keep soldiers busy, especially when they have live ammunition, live weapons, uh, because we are just meant as human beings to have something that we are going towards, something we were striving for, whether it be a, a, a better life, a better marriage, whatever, something we're striving for that we can fill that purposeful void. As soon as we lose that momentum and that gap comes, that's when the beast comes in out of the shadows and starts to take over. And that's what was happening with me. And I realized the beast shows up every day. It has boundless energy. It's with us when we go to night. It whispers in our ear. It wakes us up in the middle of the night. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and you can't shut your mind off? That's the beast. It's waiting for you every day. And if you don't have a methodology to meet that level of energy, it's going to chew you up and spit you out. And I had to, I had to, I had to figure that out. Okay. So this is like, it's absolutely blowing my mind. I thank you so much, Eric, for everything you're sharing, because it is such a very simple, I mean, I'm not downplaying, but simple for people listening to Mm -hmm. recognize this pattern in their life. Like that beast is there every day, whether I choose to work out, whether I choose to take care of myself, whether I choose to, you know, what I'm eating, what I'm sleeping. And then, you know, am I building towards the version of myself that I'm always choosing to be? Or am I believing um, the beast? Like, am I believing the beast? So if you look at all of the things that you just summarized there, what are things that you do every day to stay in purpose and stay in that line so that the beast, I kind of say like, whatever you resist persists, right? So the beast is always there. I, sometimes I laugh and I look at, I'm going to now have a name, but I laugh and I look at it and go, okay, Marsha. That's not your highest version. You know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay. What can, what's the next thing you can do? Right. Cause we right. spend so much time beating ourselves up in that space, which solves nothing. It's like, what can we do next? So what are some of the things that you do on a daily basis to stay in purpose and not feed that beast? Yeah, that's awesome. Great question. So what I realized is, and again, I come from a military background, so I kind of approach things like that. And so what I realized is that we live in a hostile world. So as soon as we wake up every day and we step out of bed and we go to face the world. We are dealing with a hostile world and the beast is leading the charge on that. Just waiting in the wings to attack you. And you're, when you're vulnerable, when you're weak, when you're tired, 
those kind of things. And so what I realized that if I was going to live what I call the perfect day, by the way, I think you can live the perfect day, even when the conditions are very imperfect and subpar. Very rarely are you going to have perfect conditions. I think you can lead, lead your perfect day, even in your darkest moments, because I've experienced it. I've read about it. It's all about your mindset and how you approach it, right? And so when you go about your day, what I realized is that I developed what is called the seven elements. And this is something I perfected over the last 15 years. So this isn't just theory. This is stuff that I apply myself, right? In fact, one of the things I, I always make sure that's very important to me when I'm speaking on stage, I never share anything with the audience. I haven't personally tested myself. I don't read something in a book and then tell people about it. I actually apply my own things in my life, right? And so more. what I realized is that these seven elements are like almost like little walls that I build, not from society, but from the beast. I insulate myself. So once I have all seven elements installed, the beast literally has to get through all seven layers to get to me. It's impossible. I mean, it's impossible. So I've set myself up for success. Now, listen, I don't want to just make it sound like uh, I'm living this perfect life, not even close. Things happen to me every single day. But the thing is, is, I'm equipped now to manage it in a way, in a very healthy way that at least... I can mitigate it the best I possibly can. So what I'll do is I could just share, what I'll do is I'll share the seven just quickly. And you, if you want to talk one about one specifically, sure. I think it's good for the audience to know. And if they want to get the book or whatever they can Absolutely. or check out my website, but there, and these are, by the way, in order of priority, and this is a lifelong thing. So it's not something you install all seven tomorrow and start. You start with number one, get that down. Then number two, because if you had two layers, that's two layers now before you were exposed, right? Then you can add the third layer, then you can add the fourth. So the first one is managing your priorities. So focus on the main thing and eliminate the things that distract. I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of this. I spend more time now getting rid of stuff so I, don't, I can focus on the things that matter the most. Like for instance, being a dad. Uh, you and I talked about before we got on the call, like uh, there's, certain, there's only three people in the whole world that can call me dad. They can't call anybody else that. And so I got to make sure that I've got enough margin in my life to be a dad, to be a husband, to be, you know, present for you right now. Mm -hmm. So I have a methodology on how to do that. I explained deeply, deeper in in the book and, you know, we could talk about it more if you want, but the second one is managing your energy. The beast has energy. You're going to have to have energy to match it. So create a healthy life and manage your physical resources. And I talk about the six principles behind that. So there's six principles of managing your energy. And so we walk through that. Uh, The third one is work within your strengths. So you want to eliminate, delegate, and automate areas of weakness. Society teaches us to focus on our weaknesses, right? How does society do that? When you come home with your report card, I don't know how how they do it in Canada, but where I grew up, you had a report card. It had A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's. And if I brought my report card back home and I had three A's, two B's, and a C, my dad focused on the C and that's all he focused on. So we're taught early on where you're weak, you got to fix it. No, you don't. You suck at those. Focus on your strengths. And so there's things you're uniquely qualified to do. You have to eliminate and and allow yourself to not focus on those weaknesses and then focus on the strengths. So that's number three. By the way, the beast attacks you in your weaknesses and wants you to stay in your weaknesses because that's where the guilt comes from. That's where the, you know, not taking ownership, because how can you take ownership of something you're no good at? But you can take ownership of the things that you're uniquely qualified to do. The fourth one's my most important one, uh, living with clarity. To me, there's nothing more beautiful than when you're hanging out with someone who, who has clarity in their life. And so clarify key components of your life so that you may live purposefully. One of the things you have to clarify, and I think you're a big proponent of this, 
because you've talked about this a lot, is clarifying your reality. So we all have a reality that we live in, whether it be dealing with a child that has substance abuse that you find yourself mired in or dealing with an aging parent that needs you now, um, which I'm dealing with, or a physical thing. I mean, we all have realities that we have to, un- we have to embrace. But it doesn't mean you can't thrive during that reality, right? Start, but it starts with living with clarity and understanding that. Number five is managing expectations. Create healthy relationships by clarifying others' expectations. You cannot achieve any level of significance, Marsha, without the help of others, right? There's no example of any man or any woman doing anything significant by themselves. You've got to have a team. Well, the biggest way we get crossways with others when there's a gap in expectations, right? And so I talk about how to be purposeful with expectations of the people that you're doing life with, right? And then number six is surrounding yourself with the right people or assembling a team, right? So who are the people that you're doing life with that are in tune with the vision that you have your life with and being purposeful about that? And then number seven, and my one of my favorites is building systems. So crafting systems to create the necessary margin to pursue significance. The number one tactic the beast has, I've discovered, is keeping you busy, Marsha, right? And so have you ever been really busy? And at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I was busy, but you can't really put a finger on what it is you accomplished. Yes. That's that's a that's a classic tactic of the beast, keeping you busy doing nothing. That's why you have to create margin so you have time to breathe, to think, and to focus on what's most important in your life and then fo- and then move towards that. So those are the seven elements that uh, I develop and I do every single day. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that because I mean, I I will make sure everything is in the show notes because your book sounds phenomenal. And this is exactly the kind of practical approach that I love. It's like, I like this. How do I implement this in my life on a daily basis? And you said something right in the beginning that hit me that I really wanted to just emphasize for people who are listening. Like the beast is always there and there's no perfect day, right? Mm. To me, the tools that you put into place on the days that are the darkest days can be that like, that's where it's important. It's even most important in those dark days. Yeah. I think one thing I do want to highlight is I believe there are perfect days. There's just no perfect conditions. Yep. You see, there's a difference, right? So I think we, 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 when we think of perfect days, we think of sunny skies, Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a perfect day when it's stormy out, your picnic's been ruined, you got a flat tire, you know, your spouse is skeptical, negative, and grumpy. You know, we we depend too much on too many external conditions to things to be perfect. That's just not how it works. The no. beat that's where the beast shows up. The beast shows up to really get in your head with that kind of stuff. But you still can have the perfect day even without the perfect conditions. And so that's what I really focus in on. Mm-hmm. No, I absolutely love this. I love this entire conversation. Um, as I look through, I want, I'm just going to follow my gut managing <laughs> expectations. I'm oh yeah. My gut. I'm managing expectations because yeah. um, one of the things I, I talk a lot about is that like, if we only live in expectations, then we're always future-based. There's nothing wrong with future-based, but how I choose to show up every day is what's going to create my future. And yeah. standards, I like to call my state because every time I'm like, oh, I'm just in this state state of frustration, I stop and go, okay, but where my standards of what I know I need every single day to be my best self, where are they at? And they're always off. Like, so if mm-hmm. I, my expectations are, I'm in this frustrated experience with my expectations, it almost always boils down to not living the standards that I say are important for me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So you're talking about expectation with yourself. So you're being proactive with that. And what I do in the book is I take it to another level in that whoever you're doing life with, they also have to understand your expectations and you have to understand their expectations. And almost every time there's a gap, right? And so having that, those proactive conversations with the people you're doing life with, like, Hey, like I used to get my wife and I, by the way, I don't believe in what is called the honeymoon period in a marriage. You hear about that? The honeymoon period, no, I don't believe in my that. wife and I never experienced that. You know, our hardest time in our marriage was our first three years when we we're just trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And we used to get in fights all the time, even over little things like on riding bicycles, you know, uh, going out and riding together. And I remember one time I was complaining to a friend of mine and he started laughing and he said, have you ever before you went on a ride or done something with your wife, have you ever asked her what her expectations are? I'm like, no, shouldn't it be obvious? Like, no, it's not. Ask her next time what her expectations are. And you'll be amazed at what she says. And so I want to share with you uh, what my my wife and I experienced during the pandemic. I think everybody in the pandemic probably had a a moment with a loved one where you just got to your wits end. And so my wife and I, we were going on a long hike. We did a lot of hiking during the pandemic because there was not much else to do. Mm-hmm. And one day we were hiking and my wife looked at me and she dropped this bomb on me. She's like Bloomington where I live in Indiana. She goes, this is not my forever place. I don't want to live here forever. I thought we'd just pay off the house and we just travel. And she kind of dropped this bomb on me. I said, well, where do you want to live? And she's like, I want to live in Southern California. And I'm like, well, you got to get a new dream because I'm not going to Southern California. I'm not paying their prices, all that kind of stuff. So I just said, listen, I'm open to having this discussion with you, but I need more clarity. What is it that you want? What is your are your expectations? So about a week later, we went on another hike and we went on a long hike. And my wife told me, she said, I want to open my window of my home and I want to be able to see and smell the ocean. I'm like, that's awesome. There's a lot of places we could do that. It doesn't have to be California. During that time, I had to clarify what my expectations were. And my expectations were, I just wanted to travel, mm-hmm. you know, and I started to realize I could do that anywhere. I don't have to live in Bloomington to travel. So if my wife wants to live near the ocean, that's her gap and expectation. That's her expectation. And I want to travel. That's my expectation. There's a gap. So there's a magic question that I learned. And Michael Hyatt taught me this, my mentor for a while. And the, whenever you find yourself in a gap with someone and expectations, long as you have the courage to find out what the gap is, here's a powerful question. Ask this question to this person. What must be true for you to be happy with where we're going with this? Or the question is, what must be true, right? That's what you're asking. And so once I realized that, I asked my wife, then I said, okay, you want ocean and you want to smell the ocean. I want to travel. What must be true for you and I to find a place that we want to live? So she came back and she said, I like, there's an area between Charleston and Savannah that I love. I think that would be fantastic. And she said, there's airports in Charleston, there's airports in Savannah, there's airport in Hilton Head. You can fly out of any of those places to travel. So now we are starting to figure out an area, right? Mm-hmm. We've recently landed on, after going out and checking out the area, we really like the Hilton Head, Beaufort area. So now we're looking at houses there. But it started with having that initial conversation. What are her expectations? What are my expectations? Where's the gap? And then having the courage to ask what must be true and then having them make that statement. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, and two years from now, when my wife opens up the window and she can smell the, hear the ocean, she's now happy because we've met her expectations and I can drive down the road and jump on a plane to travel. I've met my expectations. Life is good. But the problem is, is we get so hung up on just what our expectations are that we don't have the courage to ask them, well, what are your expectations? Even as something as simple as going on a bike ride together, you have to have the courage to ask the other person, what are your expectations? Oh, 
I couldn't love this conversation more. And <laughs> I, I want, I want everyone who's listening to understand that it, it can be, you can insert anything into the example that you're sharing, right? Mm-hmm. I am relating because my husband and I just celebrated our 29th anniversary. So we've been married 29 years, but this level of communication. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's been something. It's Did been you get married when you were like 10? Yeah. 10. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll receive that. <laughs> is this piece of communication has been so interesting to learn, right? It's been so interesting to learn. And I, I love what you're saying there, because if you think about it right from the very first conversation that your wife had with you, she could have said, I want to go to California. And you could have said, that's ridiculous. End of discussion. But instead it's having the courage to open up and say like, well, what is it that you actually do want? And then you can speak from that space. And then you start to, to go, because it's funny. We have a lot of friends who have bought love my friends, but have bought much bigger homes, have bought much bigger things. And I, we're both very simple. And we actually have had many conversations. Like if you had X amount of money, would you buy this home? And we're both like, nope, like it's just not of interest to us, but traveling, doing things together is more important. And this is that level, that deep level of communication is really important that I think that but it also comes from allowing yourself to like be vulnerable to I mean, put yourself out there and say what you what you want and open up that communication because how many times does the beast show up things get shut down fast and all of a sudden now you have a problem that really didn't even have to happen mm, yeah yeah and it, it's it's with all your relationships it's not just your spouse mm-hmm. but the other thing though it has to be you, you can't be all things to everybody and have these conversations with everybody. It has to be with the people that you're doing life with the closest to you. Have you ever heard of the term called the Dunbar number? Yes. Um, John Eldridge, he's a great author. Uh, he wrote Wild at Heart. Um, I can't, the book he just wrote, uh, I'd love. Um, maybe you could, well, you can, e- I can email it to you, you can put in your show notes. But in the mm-hmm. book, he talks about this thing called the Dunbar number. And the Dunbar was a psychologist. You can Google it. His la- Dr. Dunbar, I can't remember his first name, but he, his conclusion was, is as human beings, we have only so much empathy that we can give to the world, right? We have a capacity. There's a limit. You can only empathize so much. And the number he came up with called the Dunbar number is 150 relationships, right? So you have the empathy, the capacity to empathize with about 150 people on a real personal level. Beyond that, you start to lose it and starts to diminish. And so the point of that is we're just not meant as human beings to know that there was a landslide in some corner of the world and you know 3,000 people lost their lives. It's hard for us to process that. On top of my kid just got an F at school, on top of my husband maybe having an affair, on top of I just found out that I have a lump that needs to be looked at, on top of my grandfather's got an issue. You know what I'm saying? There's only so much. And so I think that understanding that you only have so much capacity and giving up the fact that you don't have to be like my thoughts and prayers to you. You don't have to always respond to everything, but you respond to the things that you've intentionally said this is the group of people. These are my people. This is who I'm doing life with. And I'm going to make an impact on the world with these people and all the rest. You're going to have to give that up a little bit. I think we try too hard to be too empathetic and we've lost our ability to be empathetic because of that. That's a great point. Thank you so much for sharing that because we aren't meant to hold and, and hold all of what's happening. I have some family, love them to pieces, but they'll say, did you see this on the news? I'm like, no, 
No, I, I did not. And I, cause yeah. I don't, I, I just don't, I'm really careful with my, it's not that I'm living in a bubble, but I recognize there are some things that's just, that's not going to have space for me right now because this yeah. is what I'm working on. And I love the way you explain that. Yeah. Uh, you're very edifying. That's a strength that you have, Marcia. I'm sure you hear that all the time, but every time I make a statement, you always follow up with, thank you so much for that. All right. That was a really good point. So th- this is a very uplifting talk for me. Thank you for this. This is very cathartic for me. Thank you for being so encouraging. You're welcome. Yes, I definitely, I definitely can be encouraging. Still straight shooter though, but definitely yeah. encouraging. Definitely encouraging. <laughs> um, you talk a lot about, and I want to share this for somebody who is listening and that they can take away in a sense. Um, they're like, okay, this is amazing. There's so many things here and so many things that I want to learn about myself and how to put into my life. And definitely the book will be something will be available in the show notes. When it comes down to it, what is one of the first things a person can do? And I love how you explain this to discover their own significance. First mm. off, what does that mean? And how, what is something that they can do immediately? Yeah. Well, I think the very first thing is the what we just shared the seven elements of perfect day. That's encompassed of what I call principle number two, taming the beast. Mm-hmm. But there's a first principle for that that I think is very important. And I call it embrace your spiritual journey. And I believe we are all spiritual beings. Now, this is not a religious thing. What I mean by that is that there's there's always something a little bit bigger than ourselves, right? And I think we all recognize that. We recognize that it's not just all about us. There's a bigger meaning to what we're doing, why we're doing the things we do. The problem is, is most most of us don't know what our what our why is, right? It's that little thing in our heart that constantly it's a it's a little voice that's constantly asking you why, right? And I think that's so important. You know, uh, Gail Hyatt, Michael Hyatt's uh, spouse, she once said, when people lose their why, they lose their way, right? So when people lose their why, they lose their way. And so if you wake up in the morning, all right, thinking about all the things you need to accomplish for the day, Marsha, and you don't know what your why is, why even get out of bed? What's the point? Mm-hmm. If you're going to go out into a hostile world, the beast is waiting for you and it's going to it's going to take you out like nothing if if you don't know what your why is. In fact, if you don't know your why, you're quick to anger and you're quick to quit and quick to give up and quick to p- uh, pick a destructive lifestyle. If I see someone that goes off on someone in a in a public setting, I know that person just doesn't know their why. Yep. Right? Because when you know your why, there's peace in that. And so I believe there's a way you discover that. And it's two quick, it's two easy parts. It's where your passion and your superpower intersects. And when those things are aligned, then your why begins to formulate in front of you. Now, this isn't something that you can, I can give you an exercise and you go to a coffee shop and in 30 minutes you plug in a formula and now you know your why. Instead, what it is, is you have to begin to identify what your passion is and how you identify what your passion is. It's very easy. It's what you're willing to suffer for. So if you're willing to suffer for something, you know you have a true passion for it. Because when conflict happens, something negative happens in your life, you're going to have that moment. You're like, wow, is it worth it? Well, if it's your passion, it becomes worth it. So for me, my passion is people. So Marsha, this is really uplifting for me to get to know you, to get meet a new person. I love that. If I go into a room of 30 strangers, that's just 30 potential friends for me. Mm-hmm. I have a passion for people. I've always just been a glutton for punishment. I want to be around people and I'm willing to suffer for people. So as a speaker, when I get on stage, there's some people that don't like my message and they tell me about it. They write negative things. They say negative things. And I'm willing to take those lumps because I, I, I'm willing to suffer for that. So everybody has to understand what their passion is. But that's just the fuel that helps you get above the chaos. 
what guides you once you get above the chaos is your strength, your superpower. These are the things you're uniquely qualified to do. And in the book I talk, there's three power questions you ask yourself. Number one, what do others say about you? So I mentioned that earlier and earlier as we were talking, that guy in the audience that said, Eric, you're a good speaker. People will tell you, they'll give you clues in what your strength is. Like, hey, Marsha, like I just gave you a clue. Marsha, you're an encourager. Mm -hmm. You're very edifying with your words. You acknowledge my statement. You you tell me that you acknowledge it. You add, that's a very that's a strength that you have. Not everybody has that, right? And so enough people tell you that you realize, wow, there is a strength here. There's something I need, I can unpack here. That's number one. The second thing is what comes easy to you. There's things that you do, Marsha, you take for granted, right? Like there's some people that can look at a spreadsheet and they see a pattern in numbers. It just comes out to them, right? I look at a spreadsheet. I'm like, Sorry. no way. There's some people that can open a hood of a car, taste the oil and tell you what's wrong with the car. They just, they understand mechanics again, not me. Right. Like for me getting on stage and speaking, that comes easy to me. I thought everybody did mm-hmm. that. I thought anybody could do that only to realize that's uniquely qualified. I'm uniquely qualified. So what comes easy to you? And then finally, where are you getting professional opportunities? Meaning that if, if it, it seems like doors open for you in this particular area, well, once you begin to understand, hey, I have an affinity towards this thing, and you align that with your passion, then what happens is as you're doing life, your why starts to form. So I didn't start out wanting to be a professional speaker. It began to show up and began. I began to realize this is my path because I kept leaning into my passion, which is people, aligning that with my strength, which is communication. And over time, I realized I'm a professional speaker, right? It formulated in front of me. And so what I would recommend for everybody to do is just ask yourself, what are you willing to suffer for? And ask yourself, what are some potential strengths that I have? And then how could you align those two things together in your everyday life? It may be something as simple as you volunteer for some community thing after work that allows you to unpack this passion and unpack this strength to see where it takes you. Because you have no idea where this journey is going to take you. I could drive and come visit you in Ontario uh, in the cover of darkness. Only knowing uh, with my car lights in front of me, about 100 feet in front of me, but I can do that enough times, eventually I will get to Ontario. That's what your life's like. You may not know what tomorrow brings, but you know what today brings if you just lean into that. And then the next day you lean into that. And before you know it, your why begins to formulate. Once you have your why, that's a foundational thing for significance. So that's that's where I would start. That is so powerful. Seriously, I absolutely love that. I just wrote this morning about how we get so stuck on seeing the mountaintop that we forget that I need the steps to get there. So what's oh, yeah. like, what can I see right in front of me that I can do today yeah. that is going to take me in that direction? Because then yeah. we look back sometimes and we think, oh, I didn't hit that mountaintop or that peak that I wanted. So I obviously failed, but we didn't actually do any of the steps that would have got us there. Oh, that's right. And here's a here's even another step is once you get to that mountaintop, you only realize there's a bigger mountaintop waiting for you. <laughs> Way bigger. There is no mountaintop. There's always a better, bigger one just waiting. <laughs> there always is. Oh my gosh. This has been honestly such an incredible conversation. I have loved it. I will make sure everything that you have, your book is available in the show notes. Where's the best place for people to connect with you, learn more? Well, I think what I would do is I now that we're having this discussion, what I would recommend your audience do is it's a toy free to them. If they go to, it's in my website, but I'll give them something easy for them to remember. If you just go to your significance assessment.com, your significance assessment.com, there's a 25 question assessment. And what it does is it, and don't overthink it when you take it, you should take 
Get two marks just to see to. where you're at. Right, right. And so yeah. it'll tell you which mode of significance you're in, whether you're in rock bottom, success, or significance. And then within that mode, there's three sub phases. And your score will tell you exactly where you are. And then you have access to a free ebook that explains your results to you and gives you which of the seven elements of the perfect day you should focus on next to help you get to the next level. And totally free to your audience. It's fun. You kind of see where you are and see where you want to go and a, and, a, and a playbook on helping you do that. So that's what I would do if I were your audience. Thank you so much for sharing. I will make sure that is available in the show notes. And one of the things that you said earlier, and I just feel I'm following my gut circling back to, is you talked about um, passion in the sense that like, what are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to continue to show up for? Mm -hmm. And what means to you. And I know when I first um, wrote my book and started speaking on stages, I remember my husband coming to me and saying, okay, Marsha, if, because you have to, you have to put into perspective, there's nobody who wanted me to talk about difficult our story, our story. Nobody wanted me to, no family wanted me to, but I kept feeling like this is, I think I'm supposed to do this. And he said, if everything turns out okay with our kids, is this a path that you feel so strongly that you will follow? And I'm like, hundred percent. He's like, okay, how about it then? Like, it was just this, this piece of, you know, are you doing it for this reason? Or are you doing it for this reason? Or, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm supposed to go this way. That's awesome. What's your husband's name? Brad. Brad. Well, cheers to Brad that uh, he had the, the security to support you because that's, that's so huge. What a gift you have that Brad gave you. By saying, okay, if this is what you want to do, let's lean into it. And I support you. My wife did the same thing. Aaliyah yeah. did the same thing for me. And not everybody has that gift. So what a gift that Brad gave you with that. Thank you for sharing it. That is fantastic. So cheers to you, Brad. If you ever hear this, I'm, I'm, I'm team Brad. <laughs> Your team, Brad, I'll tell him that. I'll tell him that he's awesome. He is awesome, but it's definitely, you know what? It's so um, tied together. So thank you for allowing me to share that mm-hmm. last question for you. What lesson in life are you most grateful for? Hmm. I would probably say the lesson I'm most grateful for is the, probably when my first, my first daughter was born, my daughter, my first kid was born because uh, I'm ashamed to say this, but when she was born, I rejected her, her first year of life, not because I didn't love her, but because I didn't think I was ready and I was not in a very good place. And I remember my boss pulling me aside and said, listen, your life has changed. You're in a different phase. You need to accept the phase of life you're in and embrace it and become the father that your daughter was meant to have. And it took me about a year to figure that out. In fact, I remember when my wife, when I'd come home, my wife would get so frustrated with me. She would just force me to hold my daughter because I didn't want to hold her because I'm not sure, I didn't want to take the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I remember my daughter looking at me one day and she was crying and my wife left. And we just looked at her. My daughter looked at me and she just kind of sighed like, I'm with dad. I'm just going to have to figure this out. And I realized, man, I got to step up a little bit. And so I think the biggest lesson for me that I'm taking away from that is that when you hit a new phase of life, become aware of it, embrace it, celebrate it, and understand there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this new phase. I was thinking of all the negative, all the things I wouldn't be able to do anymore because now I had this responsibility. But then when I started to turn that and realize, but there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to come out of this and started looking at the neat things I want to get out of this. Then I started becoming the dad I need to become. My daughter and I are we're I totally awesome today, but it took that first year of me just figuring out. And luckily 
my wife was willing to tolerate me. Like I asked her, I said, I, I, how did we last? She goes, I have no idea how we lasted as long. It must've been the grace of God or something. I don't know how we made it because you were hard to be around is basically what she said. And she tells my kids that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can do hard things though. This is the whole thing, right? It's not, it's not easy, but it's deciding that you want to continue to stay that path and you work together and you grow together, right? Because yeah. I mean, who you are today is not the same person that when you first got married. And it's the same for us. We're, we're completely different people, yeah. but chosen to grow together. Yeah. And so, uh, right before I came on this podcast with you, I literally made uh, scrambled eggs for my daughter. So she's living at home right now. Beautiful 19 year old girl. She came out of bed, came downstairs. We had a nice little 20 minutes together, made her some eggs. And we just talked about things, talked about life a little bit, much better place now, 19 years later. And I'm so glad that we have this, this, this time together. And I have this relationship with her. It's, it's been fantastic. Oh, that is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing and for sharing everything you shared today. Like massive, massive value for anybody who wants to create change in their life. And Rise Above Chaos is the name of your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. Rise Above Chaos, which literally we all have chaos and we, we want to choose to rise above it. So I love that's it. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And the second part of the title is called The Five Principles to Discover Significance. And this is the best part and live in peace. And that's the thing that I found. I didn't know I was going to find this, but once I dis- discover my level of significance, that's when I begin to live peacefully in my life. And that's a beautiful thing to live in peace, even though there's chaos around you. That's why I call it rise above. You know, chaos is never going to leave you. It's going to be around, but you can rise above it and live in peace in spite of the chaos. That's the beautiful part of it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. <laughs>